Ah, good morning. That does not look good. Let's see if we can make that look better. I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center. There we are. Random Lake, Wisconsin. Good to have you with us here today for our Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily, daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. Uh, today uh, is Saturday, and what we like to do on Saturday is look forward to t- uh, tomorrow's readings, specifically those that we would normally have heard preached, say, the matin service before divine service or at Vespers in the afternoon and evening. Uh, but since we don't celebrate those services anymore, the Old Testament and epistle reading uh, get a little bit neglected, depending on the pastor's predilection on any given day. Sometimes I do preach from those texts, but uh, generally always from the gospel reading for the day. Uh, the ladies of the LWML uh, for the South Wisconsin District are actually meeting across the street and downstairs, and I've allowed them to use the internet connection. So we're running uh, uh, some potential challenges, right? We'll see how it goes. It's going all right right now, so maybe it will go well. So uh, we're going to look again at the Old Testament and Epistle for tomorrow, at least uh, those two options, and consider them um, so that you're better equipped to receive the preaching. All right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our memory verse for this week, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 26. We'll pray our psalm for this week. My heart is steadfast, O God, I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens, your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. God has promised in his holiness, with exaltation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter, Moab is my washbasin, upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies? O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. All right, I'd like to actually uh, read meditation about the psalm from Patrick Henry Reardon on his excellent meditations upon the Psalms. My heart is prepared, O God, he says. And I'll try to put the text up here on the screen so you can see that. My heart is steadfast. 
Psalm uh, 107, Hebrew 108, is composed in, of two parts, both of which have already met in two other psalms, or we have already met. Thus, the first half of Psalm 107 is found in Psalm 56, and the second half is found in Psalm 59, or something you maybe didn't know. The references to the dawn and the waking, awakening make Psalm 107 most suitable for morning prayer. Here we are. Very good. The line, the line of this psalm most often heard is, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and may your glory be over all the earth. Nor is it surprising that this line is repeated several times on the Feast of the Lord's Ascension into heaven, which we'll um, celebrate, of course, 40 days, or excuse me, yeah, 40 days after Easter. Moreover, no matter what the feast or season, this same line of Psalm 107 is prayed every celebration of the divine liturgy that's in the Eastern Church. As the priest nine times senses, that's with the uh, incense, the blessed sacrament remaining in the chalice after the congregation has received Holy Communion, prior to its removal to the table of preparation, he thrice proclaims, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and may your glory be over all the earth. The priest then says, Blessed is our God, and turning around, he blesses the congregation with the Holy Communion, singing out, Always, now and ever, and unto ages of ages to which the people answer, Amen, and continue singing with joy. Let our mouths be filled with your praise, O Lord, that we may sing of your glory. For you have permitted us to partake of the holy, divine, immortal, and life-creating mysteries. Establish us in your holiness, that all the day long we may meditate upon your righteousness. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Such is the church's solemn response to this line of Psalm 107. Right. So now that's the Eastern Church, um, not part of the Western Rite, um, but also quite beautiful. Their use of psalms and of uh, liturgical songs is much more profound than ours. In view of this uh, explicit application of our psalm in this formal Eucharistic setting, it does not seem unreasonable to understand this verse in this setting as a key to interpreting the psalm as a whole. So he's suggesting verse 1 then is the interpretive key to the entire psalm. Right? So my heart is steadfast, O God, I will sing and make melody with all my being. All right. This prayer is appropriately filling our mouths as we leave the Lord's house going forth to his service in the world. I shall confess you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations, that your loved ones may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hearken to me. And will not you, O God, go forth with our host? O give us help from our affliction, for vain is deliverance by man. Which you can see there in uh, 12, right? Verse 12, O grant us help against our foe, for vain is the salvation of man. Holy Communion is our strength for combat in the cause of sanctification. Our mouths, which we pray God to fill with his praise, are yet moist with the blood of redemption. Quote, establish us in your holiness, we pray, for through the Holy Communion we become partakers of his holiness, Hebrews 12, that very holiness without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, verse 14. Therefore, the priest closes the post-communion litany by chanting, For you are our sanctification, that is, our being made holy. We're made holy in Christ by the body and blood given to us in the supper. Very good. But this holiness freely conferred in the sacred mysteries, or sacraments if you prefer, must be further established in the governance of our lives, for it will be tried in combat throughout the rest of the day. Thus, the same litany prays, that this whole day may be perfect, holy, peaceful, and sinless, and the priest in the collect that follows it beseeches God, quote, make straight our path, establish us in all our, 
in all your fear. Guard our life, make firm our steps. Right? So he's, he's saying that what we receive in the sacrament um, is, is our holiness, but then that holiness extends out into our daily lives. And we daily pray that God um, make us holy, that, that we live lives of service um, for our neighbor, I would say. All right, here's how, continuing with uh, Father Reardon here. This is a holy warfare, for it is fought by a holy people. In God shall we do valiantly. Where is that? In God we shall do valiantly. Oh yes, verse 13. Um, and he will bring our oppressors to naught. Or as, as it said here, translating from the Hebrew, it is he who will tread down our foes. Through us, made holy with his sanctification, will the Lord throughout the day arise and divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkoth, taking possession of Gilead and Ephraim, Manasseh and Moab, by reason of our sanctification in the Holy Eucharist or the Supper, is the rest of the world through our lives to be sanctified. Especially are we to conquer the reputedly impregnable fortress of Edom, who those very gates of Hades that the Lord says will not be able to withstand the onslaught of the church's faith in him. See Matthew 16, 18. The gates of hell shall not prevail, right? So we pray, quote, let our mouths be filled with your praise that all the day long we may meditate upon your righteousness. This is the daily praise of which our psalm says, my heart is prepared, O God, my heart is prepared. I shall praise and sing in my glory. It is with this prepared heart, rendered pure and fit for God's praise by the assiduous effort of our inner struggle, that we will meditate all the day long on his righteousness, for higher than the heavens is his mercy and his truth above the clouds. He goes forth with us against our foes. All right. So, that, I mean, it does sound a lot like um, the way that the people of Israel sang as they marched around Jericho, for example. It reminds me of that, right? They sang and they made melody to God as God delivered their enemies over to them. All right, excellent meditation there. And I love, um, despite um, having maybe a little bit different view of sanctification in the Eastern Church, well, actually, not maybe, they do, um, I do love the idea that the sacrament then prepares us for that holy battle um, that we wage each day as we speak God's truth um, against the lies that this world tells. All right. Our epistle reading for tomorrow is from Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for the saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. All right, as we like to do, uh, like to see how the texts um, for the day are used in our Lutheran confessions, which uh, seek to confess God's word according to the scriptures. Um, and they actually use this Ephesian text in the article on 
uh, free will or human powers in um, the formula of Concord, Solid Declaration, Article 2. All right, so let me find where I'd like to jump in here. We were just talking about Ephesians 5. There's Ephesians 2, Ephesians 4. Hold on, let me get it here. Oh yeah, there we go. I see it now. It is paragraph 10. All right. There it is. Okay. In the first place, although man's reason or natural intellect still has a dim spark of the knowledge that there is a God, as well as of the teaching of the law, see Romans 1, 19 to 21, 28 and 32, right? That the law is written upon our hearts. Nevertheless, man's reason or natural intellect is so ignorant blind and perverse that when even the most gifted and the most educated people on earth read or hear the gospel of the son of god and the promise of eternal salvation they cannot by their own powers perceive this comprehend it understand it or believe and accept it as the truth on the contrary the more zealously and diligently they want to comprehend these spiritual things with their reason the less they understand or believe and until the Holy Spirit enlightens and teaches them, they consider it all mere foolishness and fables. Ooh. So, the natural man is utterly opposed to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Unable, again, to perceive, comprehend, understand, believe, or accept it as the truth. <laughs> That's hard to hear, I know. Continuing. It is, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, quote, the unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Again, quote, since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of the gospel to preach to save, that we preach to save those who believe, 1 Corinthians 1.21. The others, who are not reborn through God's Spirit, quote, walk in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Quote, and that's Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. Quote, seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. Matthew 13, 13 and 11. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have gone wrong. No one does good. Not even one. Romans 3, 11-12. In this way, Scripture calls the natural man simply darkness in spiritual and divine things. Ephesians 5, 8 and Acts 26, 18. So Ephesians 5, 8, which was our text, which you can see on your screen there, which is right here. For you were once darkness but now you are light in the Lord. All right. So again, in this way, Scripture calls the natural man simply darkness in spiritual and divine things. Quote, The light shines in the darkness that is in the dark, blind world which neither knows nor regards God, and the darkness has not comprehended it. John 1, 5. Moreover, Scripture teaches that the man who is, quote, in sin, end quote, is not only weak and sick, but that he is truly lifeless 
and, quote, dead. Ephesians 2, uh, 1 and 5, and Colossians 2, 13. Just as little as a person who is physically dead can by his own powers prepare or accommodate himself to regain temporal life, so little can a man who is spiritually dead in sin prepare or address himself by his own power to obtain spiritual and heavenly righteousness in life. Unless, here's the key, unless the Son of God has liberated him from the death of sin and made him alive. Thus, Scripture denies that to the intellect, heart, and will of, of natural man, every capacity, aptitude, skill, and ability to think anything good or right in spiritual matters, to understand them, to begin them, to will them, to undertake them, to do them, to accomplish, or to cooperate in them as of himself. So, I mean, that's pretty, uh, not only strong language, but uh, exclusive language, right? Quote, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God, 2 Corinthians 3. Quote, they are all incompetent, Romans 3.12. Quote, my words find no place in you, John 8. The darkness comprehended it not, John 1. The unspiritual man does not uh, receive, or as the Greek word actually has it, does not grasp, take hold of, apprehend the gifts of the Spirit of God. That is, he has no capacity for spiritual things, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Much less will he be able truly to believe the gospel, give his assent to it, and accept it as truth. For the mind that is set on the flesh, the natural man's understanding, is, quote, hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Romans 8, 7. Summing up everything then, what the Son of God says remains eternally true. Quote, apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. And what St. Paul says is also true. Quote, for God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. End quote. Philippians 2, 13. This appealing passage is a very great comfort to all devout Christians who perceive and discover a little spark and a longing for the grace of God and eternal salvation in their hearts. They know that God, who has kindled this beginning of true godliness in their heart, wills to continue to support them in their great weakness and to help them uh, to remain in true faith until their end. All right, and then it keeps going, um, but we'll hold it off there. All right. So um, this is something that's actually absolutely essential that we understand, is that our hearts our minds, our will, our intellect is completely unable to believe that Jesus died for your sin, to, for, for our sins, to believe the gospel. Um, and, but you'll also note there, it's not just the gospel that's the problem, is that our hearts, our wills, our intellect are opposed to God's law as well. You'll note how, um, how the confessors said that, right? So even something as simple as, um, you shall not murder. And the way that, um, that faithful Christians apply that in um, every aspect of life. So regarding uh, end of life um, and not terminating life um, before the Lord would have you do. Um, same with beginning of life, that you would receive life as God gives it, um, not, not aborting. That we would treat all um, life as sacred and a gift from God, right? And only those who have been given authority by God um, to like, say, for example, execute the um, execute uh, capital punishment, only they you know, who have been given that authority may do so otherwise, you know, or to wage war, etc. Um, but otherwise, we don't take life, and we respect all life. All right? 
um, that is not natural to us. So you'll see all sorts of distortion to it. Um, some would just treat um, human life as something that can be disregarded and um, thrown away, cast away freely and willingly, whether it's your own or, or the life of another. Um, or on the other hand, we'll have Christians that will apply it so extraordinarily to say that all life is sacred, so, so there is never a time where any life can be uh, punished, right? So no capital punishment. Well, that's contrary to God's word. We don't have to like it, but it is. Now, now of course, uh, executing capital punishment appropriately and justly, uh, that's a little bit more tricky, all right? But the, the idea that you can have capital punishment or you can wage war, um, well, that's certainly um, given by God often commanded. All right. Um, so the, here's the key. Your heart, you are darkness, but no longer, right? Because now you've been brought into the light of Christ. And now it is Christ who reframes your mind, your heart, your will, your intellect, and all things to see not only um, yourself, spiritually speaking, but also physically speaking, before, uh, in this world, before your neighbor, um, in the light of who you are in Christ, right? As a baptized Christian. Right? And that changes things. Well, as, you know, you can see the things he lists there, uh, rather like fornication, being covetous, being an idolater. Etc. Or speaking empty or foolish words, right? And that's spiritual words, of course. We're talking about preaching, not the gospel, but something that is readily believed by people, right? Indoctrinating, um, whether it's uh, pastors or mainstream media or whoever it is that's indoctrinating you, right? That's darkness. It's not light. Okay. Uh, and then our Old Testament reading tomorrow uh, is from Jeremiah twenty-six. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house, and speak to all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I command you to speak to them, do not diminish a word. Perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way, that I may relent concerning the calamity which I pr propose to bring upon them because of the evil of their doings. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me, to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to heed my words of my servants, the prophets whom I send to you, both rising up early and sending them, but you have not heeded, then I will make this house like Shiloh and will, will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. So the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Now it happened when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to the people, that the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him, saying, You will surely die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord? Saying, This house will be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without inhabitant. And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the princes of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house, to the house of the Lord, and sat down in the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. And the priests and the prophets spoke to the princes and all the people, saying, This man deserves to die, for he has prophesied against this city, as you have heard with your ears. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the princes and all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city with all your words which, that you have heard. Now therefore amend your ways and your doings, and obey the voice of the Lord your God, then the Lord will relent concerning the doom that he has pronounced against you. As for me, here I am in your hand. Do with me as seems good and proper to you. But know for certain that if you put me to death, you will surely bring innocent blood on yourselves, on this city, 
and on its inhabitants, for truly the Lord has sent me to speak all these words in your hearing. All right, there ends the reading. So, uh, this is, of course, uh, the prophetic voice of the Lord, which is given, um, well, to the prophets here, later to the apostles, and then to the apostolic church, to the pastors of the church, uh, to preach God's word of law um, against, hmm, against all. And that includes, note, against princes, that is, secular rulers. Now, these secular rulers, of course, claim to be Jews, claimed to obey God's word, so it's most fitting for them. Uh, But notice, uh, Jeremiah uh, takes no sword himself. He simply speaks and lets the chips fall where they may, right? Uh, And that it will be the Lord that will bring judgment upon them if they refuse to heed the word of repentance. Now, what is repentance? Repentance, of course, is to turn from one's sin, that is to turn away from oneself, all sin is selfishness, and to turn back to God, right? Trusting in him, in his word, uh, and in him alone, right? Not in princes, not in rulers, not in um, media pundits, not in uh, idiots that post on Facebook, even pastor idiots, okay? Uh, But to trust in the Lord and the Lord alone. And uh, so... Uh, I wanted to share with you what Luther has to say. He uses this as he's talking about um, Jesus's prophetic word in John 16, where Jesus said, I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, he's talking to his apostles or disciples at this point, um, whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. All right. Um. So he's going to, he talks about, well, I'll just start from the beginning here. In the two preceding chapters, that'd be chapter 15 and uh, 14 and 15, Christ informed his disciples at length about their lot in the world after his departure. He wanted them to be prepared for this and to adjust themselves to it. Now he concludes this subject and says briefly, quote, I told you all this to keep you from being offended, that is to keep you from falling away or from despairing of me. For when you see and feel that the whole world will hate and persecute you, and especially those who are called God's people and the true church, you will be troubled. And you will be moved either to doubt that your faith and doctrine are true, or to become impatient and weary and to think, it is not, I am not going to worry about this doctrine any longer. I might as well just believe and live as others do. Then I will have peace. All right, so uh, Luther's expanding upon it, but I think he's right. All right, so he's, uh, Jesus is warning the disciples that things are not going to go well for you. Why? Because as we looked as we studied Ephesians 5 just a moment ago, is that everyone is opposed to the gospel by nature. All right? So we're given to preach God's word and to, uh, to convert hearts, to point out sinfulness. We have to. We have to point out where, where, um, where uh, our family, our friends, in my case, pastor of the congregation, the people I'm called to serve, where they have gone astray from God's word, where their worldview, their understanding of the world around them it's contrary to the worldview that God establishes in his word, for example. And it's not going to go well. And it often doesn't go well. It's not often fun. Um, it's often uncomfortable because the pastor himself gets accused at the same time um, as he's preaching it. Right? Um, so think about like last week's sermon where uh, we're talking about faith or trust in science, right? Which does, it demands your faith, it demands your trust, but it can't. And you remain faithful to God. It's just more data. It's more information, right? That is taken um, in consideration of what God has commanded, what God has spoken, all right? Um, And so here he's saying, well, you might just, 
I'm warning you because otherwise you might just think, well, I'll just give up on the doctrine. I'll give up on what God's word says um, because well, it's just too difficult. You know, the way that um, it insults people even sometimes to speak, um, say, of the way that God orders creation, male and female, not, not lesbian, gay, transgender, whatever um, you want to see. Uh, that probably will get me kicked off of Facebook, but so it is. All right? So it is. Don't become impatient or weary. Um, keep plugging away. The dear prophets were also troubled, especially the prophet Jeremiah, as we just heard, who was hounded by his own people. They reviled and vilified him continually, and they condemned him for having the hardihood to declare that Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. When they burned his book and threw him into prison, he said, quote, For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say, quote, I will not mention him or speak him anymore in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot. Jeremiah 20, verses 8 through 9. As though he were saying, this is what Luther likes to do. Okay, now I'm going to paraphrase it for you. We should, or why should I continue to preach in vain? What reward do I have except to be constantly mocked, reviled, and plagued? What devil can endure such groundless hatred, contempt, and torment from the world? But when such thoughts entered my mind, and such malice almost induced me to be offended and to stop, then I felt as though there were a burning fire in my heart and in my bones, that is, I became so terrified and so sick at heart that I felt as though I were lying in a red-hot stove and thought, that I would surely die if I kept silence. All right? And again, note, who is Jeremiah? Who do the apostles given to preach to? The, only the people that sit within the four square walls of this building across the street? No. They would preach to princes and to kings at the street corners. No. Wherever they're given to speak, they would speak. Thus, all Christians are tried, especially those engaged in the ministry. They are so plagued by the devil and the world that they would surely become weary, despair, or give up their work if they were not supported by God's word and spirit. Therefore, Christ comforts them here, lest they be influenced or offended by such trials, fall away from him, or cease their work in troublous times. When adversity befalls them and they must see, hear, and feel that both the devil and the world make them sick at heart. But Christ mentions two things with which the enemies of the Christians color their persecution and rage and in this way make the sufferings of the Christians exceedingly hard and great and provide a very strong and forceful motive for offense and defection. The first of these two things is contained in the words, quote, they will put you out of the synagogues. What does this mean? Briefly stated, it means nothing else than being separated from the people of God, cut off and cast aside as a useless and condemned member, debarred from God and from everything that is God's. It means the pronouncing of the sentence that you do not belong to or have any part in God's people, that you are deprived of God and of salvation and do not participate in prayer and in the sharing of good things uh, there are in Christ. In short, it means that in the end you are damned to the devil and cast into hell. Quote, this kind of treatment, says Christ, you must not simply be prepared, or you must simply be prepared to expect. It will tempt you to fall away from me and to think, quote, perhaps this is not the true doctrine. Perhaps I've been duped by this Christ. I am telling you this beforehand in order that you may not be alarmed against it and be able to withstand such offense. Right? So, on the one hand, uh, the prophets, the pastors, the apostles are given to preach and to preach that word in every season. All right? um, 
And it is possible, as it happened with the apostles, that they would, you'd be cast out of the church for holding to the doctrine of the scriptures. Right? Now, that hasn't happened in quite some time, but I, I could see it happening um, in our own context, that a congregation uh, would rather, well, no, actually it has happened in, not in our church body necessarily, but certainly in the churches in our community here in Random Lake, um, where uh, the pastor uh, seeks to preach God's word and the congregation no longer will hear it. Actually, it's happened to me in my own experience. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, actually, this reminds me of just sitting right here next to me on my desk. Yeah, these are hard readings. Uh, something that I can share with you. I don't know if it's going to show up. It's an open letter to the bishops of the Lutheran Church of Australia. All right, and this was written by a pastor friend of mine um, in Australia who was serving five parishes. Uh, I want to say in Queensland. No. Was he in New South Wales? I can't remember which uh, province. Um, and he has left the Lutheran Church of Australia. Um, not left his ordination vows, but, but left uh, that church body because they have departed from God's word. And he can no longer serve as a member of that church body because they no longer um, serve, or they no longer represent the word of God. Uh, incidentally, we've been working also on a congregation revision for our congregation. And there is an article in there that if um, the church decides because of unfaithfulness, uh, to leave the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, um, what are the mechanisms involved with, with that departure? You know? right. But our Constitution also uh, requires us to join with others of, of like confession. So if, if not the Missouri Synod, then we seek another, can, another church body that would um, have a faithful confession. At this point, Missouri Synod is still faithful. Um, in doctrine, uh, not always in practice, but that's how that goes. All right. Uh, continuing, though, Luther goes on. For this has always been and still is a powerful, if not the most powerful, argument and plea used by the devil and his cohorts against true Christians. Right? Uh, that that uh, if you say the truth, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause problems. You know, the you know, pastor you might get run out on the rails or the congregation. Um, you know, may you may have to walk. You may have to walk from a congregation that no longer teaches and preaches faithfully, right? Um, and that's always the fear, right? But that they're going to kick you out. Hmm. But if they can deprive them of the name of the Church of Christ or of God and use this argument and plea against them, they think they have won the victory. And here we go. This is our reading now that we've been talking about. For instance, when the prophet Jeremiah twenty-six verse four has the courage to declare. All right, so 26, verse 4, you see it there, right here. Kings and priests and entire population of Jerusalem, you are hereby informed that God is angry with you and that you will be led away into captivity by the king of Babylon and that this city will be raised. They cast these words into his teeth and say, Are you aware that this is the holy city and that our king has been appointed by God and that our priesthood has been ordained by God? We are the seed of Abraham and the people of God. You see how Luther takes the little text and expands it, right? <laughs> I love it. Um, what do you say to this? Thus they rejected him. Consequently, no one would listen to him. He was called a false prophet. They said, quote, Shall this one man step forward and open his mouth so wide against the word and the promise of God that, and say that this divine kingdom, this priesthood, and this chosen people will be rejected? That a foreign ungodly king will raise the temple and the city and carry everything away? Ah, this is the devil's damned heresy and blasphemy. For it is out of the question, out of question, that God's people and the city, God's king, priesthood, and temple, and shall one say everything, 
should perish or be seized by the heathen. That would be tantamount to saying God that God does not want to be the God of, of his people and that he does not want to keep his promise. So that's the people's ravings. <laughs> you can tell that Luther is pretty good at raving himself or ranting. In brief, it would be, amount to nothing else than damning God's people, God's temple, his ordinance, and his word. Yes, God himself in addition. They clink. They clung stubbornly to this position and did not cease to condemn and persecute the prophet because of what he proclaimed until they perished and his prophecy was confirmed. The dear prophets have always been plagued by the, by the aspect and the name of the church and God's people. For the prophets have always contradicted, been contradicted with the words, quote, My dear friend, let them say what they please. The law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. That's quoting Jeremiah, mocking the people in Jeremiah 18. If a thousand Jeremiahs were to confront us, we have three things that cannot fail us. The priests who teach the law will not teach what is wrong. The prophets who have God's word will not prophesy falsely. And the elders and the wise men, for example, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem and the king, will surely know what must be done. At any rate, God has ordained that the priests should teach the law, that the prophets should have the word and revelation, and that the leaders should counsel and rule. These three things must remain as they've been given by God. This is all quoting the people. Therefore, those who preached against these statements had to be damned heretics. Behold, this could easily annoy even a stalwart Christian and cause him to say, Where, pray, are you leading me? Am I to stand up alone and preach against your people, your kingdom, your priests, and your word? For that, of course, is where your name is. They have your law, your temple, and both the spiritual and worldly government ordained by you yourself. Who am I to oppose single-handedly all that is God's? I would rather say that they are right, retract my preaching, or at least keep silence. This offended the prophets most of all. It was the strongest argument against them, just as it causes us the most trouble. Paul himself had to contend against it. Indeed, he sternly brought it to bear against himself in Romans 9.4 and said, What am I accomplishing with my preaching? I must preach against my own people who have God's law, promise, miracles, prophets, temple, and worship in Christ himself. Really, only a dauntless man would not be offended by this and not be down in the mouth. I don't know that expression, down in the mouth. It's die Pfeifen in, in Zeitzen. All right. So, um, yeah, I want to keep reading, but I'm not going to. I'll try to summarize here for you the challenge. Um, this is why um, as pastor, I often, I would say frequently, intentionally, um, say things that I know will offend, not that are wrong or false, but that, that will offend, um, the world, your flesh and the devil's lies. All right. And this is intentional, um, because you need to think. You need to think. You need to consider your heart. You need to consider your mind. You need to consider your own temptation. Um, you need to see where you have uh, chosen to follow after false gods against idols, whether they be other people, whether they be ideologies, um, whether they be uh, visions uh, that men have given. Right? Uh, and this causes problems. Right? But I don't, want, I don't want to be the only one doing that. I'd love, I love, I actually plead um, to my people, especially in Bible study, to challenge me. To say, Pastor, I hear what you're saying. I don't agree. 
Pastor, you need to prove what you just said to me. How does that um, hold? How does that, how, how can that be true according to God's word? Right? Now, I know this is the hardest thing, just as it was for Jeremiah to do, um, and so it is for pastors to do. It is for the layperson you know, to stand up and say, um, stand up to the pastor in particular and say, Pastor, you have to prove what you just said. I know I'm in the church. I know you're my pastor. I know that you um, administer the sacrament rightly. I know that you've um, baptized. You baptize according to the Lord's institution. I know we everything is right, you know, as far as um, being ordered according to God's word. But what you just said, I don't agree with. And either you're right, I'm right, or we're both wrong. <laughs> but it can't be that we're both right, all right. And and I need. I need you to prove that because if you're wrong, then you've preached falsely. I'm going to hold you to account for that. Oh, how dare you speak against the pastor? No, 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 no. Um, what, a, what a wonderfully uh, humbling, humiliating process, right? Uh, um, for both of us, for both of us. Uh, and it's necessary, right? Because otherwise, what, it, what ends up happening, just as Luther pointed out here, is what was the challenge in Isaiah's day, or excuse me, Jeremiah's day? Well, contemporary to Isaiah too, but. Jeremiah's day. It's the same problem in our day. People say, well, the pastor never errs. He never lies. He never tells falsehood. What? Is he human? Well, but he's been got, he's set apart by God to do this work. Yes, it's true. But he's still flesh and blood and he can err. Right? Okay. Um, so you, you, you must stand up. Um, you, I, I love it. I'd love if this happened more frequently. People ask, Pastor, why do, why do you do that? I had this happen to me a week ago. Pastor, why do you kneel um, when, when we speak of the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the creed? I, I don't understand why you do that. Do you think you should do that? That was a great question. It's a great question. Right now, on the one hand, if the pastor has a thin skin, he could be offended, right? Say, whoa. On the other hand, you know, is it necessary that I kneel? No. Uh, is kneeling actually uh, a body posture that's given to us in God's word? Sure it is, actually. It's a, it's a sign of reverence or respect. So that word about um, Christ coming down and becoming flesh in the, in the creed is a fitting place for us um, to recognize um, the honor and the glory that God has given to our human flesh in becoming man, right? And then to bow before him or to even kneel in reverence, all right? Is it commanded? No. Is it forbidden? No. Uh, is it necessary? No. All right. But, but to, to um, challenge me, sure, why not? Huh? There should be no offense there. All right. So uh, here's the problem. If you, if you can't receive criticism, then you can't receive the law. All right. Uh, and that's what the, the scriptures call hardness of heart, right? Which he talked about here in the, in the Jeremiah reading. Hardness of heart. If your heart is so hardened to God's word that you cannot receive it, um, to criticize your own Mm, viewpoints, standpoint, worldview, um, thoughts, ideas, the way that you've maybe n- neglected to apply God's word to your life or um, to, your, to your community, to this world, to this, to, even to our government, well then, uh, you're in the darkness, as we heard from Ephesians 5, right? But there's, only, there's really one great disinfectant, one great sanctifier, which is the light, that is the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. So. Ah, yes. So difficult readings I see here, hard readings. It is indeed true. Um, it's hard being a part of um, the church because you've got sinners ministering to sinners. 
And the only thing that can actually make it any of it work is if we all recognize our sinfulness uh, and repent for where we've done wrong. All right. This week we've been considering the sacrament of the altar. I'm going a little bit long, but that's okay. Uh, it's Saturday, right? You're all free. What are you doing? Let's confess the sacrament of the altar. What is the sacrament of the altar? It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. Where is this written? The holy evangelists Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul write, Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Who receives this sacrament worthily? Fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training, but that person is truly worthy and well-prepared who has faith in these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. But anyone who does not believe these words or doubts them is unworthy and unprepared, for the words, for you, require all hearts to believe. Let us pray. I'll pray first. O Lord Jesus, by your words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, you teach us to believe that in the sacrament, forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation are given us through these words. We give thanks to you for the precious gift of your body and blood. Forgive us for taking this gift for granted, for doubting your promises, and for trusting in our own merits as we approach the altar. Give us firm faith in your words that we might know with certainty that where there is forgiveness of sins in your body and blood, that there is also life and salvation for us and for all who believe in your promises. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. On this Saturday, we pray for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Pray the Lord put an end to all schisms and causes of offense, that he bring into the way of truth all who have erred and are deceived, that he beat down Satan under our feet, that he send faithful laborers into his harvest, that he accompany his word with his grace and spirit, that he forgive our enemies, persecutors, and slanderers, and to turn their hearts, that he give and preserve for our use the kindly fruits of the earth. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Pray for those who are ill, receiving treatment, or recovering, especially Marcella, Kelsey, Amanda, John, Timothy, Sandy, Linda, and Ken, Aaron, and Penny, our homebound Bev, David, Willis, and Janice, and Mickey, the missions and mercy work of the church, our mission of the month, Camp Luisimo, and Sheboygan County Hispanic Outreach. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Prepare a collect for the week. O God, you see that of ourselves we have no strength. By your mighty power, defend us from all adversities that may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory 
forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings and life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Just going to read the first stanza, the memorized stanza for this week of our hymn. Mark how the Lamb of God's self-offering our human sinfulness takes on in the birth waters of the Jordan as Jesus is baptized by John. Hear how the voice from heaven thunders, This is my beloved Son. See how in dove-like form the Spirit descends on God's anointed one. All right, that concludes our congregation prayer today. A little bit longer um, than usual, but I think, like you said, a little bit challenging as far as the readings go, this time of judgment as we have in Lent. Um, if, I, if I can find a, the link, I'll send you um, this extra uh, really phenomenal letter. It's many pages, 10 pages from uh, this pastor friend of mine. Um, on when, what, what do you do when, when you need to leave a church body because it no longer teaches the truth? Right? That could apply to a congregation. Um, you in a congregation, it could apply to a pastor uh, over a congregation or over a church body. Right? Uh, and how do you do? What do you go, how do you go about it? I think he does an excellent job. All right, Lord be with you all. We'll see you in the morning, 9.30 for divine service, and then uh, roughly eh, a little close to 11 o'clock for Bible study. See you then.